Titus chapter 3, picking up in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, the final study in the book of Titus. And so over this course of the book, we have seen old Pastor Paul giving direction to young Pastor Titus and many different instructions for this church that was out of control. And uh, he's helped set things in order from appointing elders to rebuking false teachers to teaching the believers. Um, And we see here in this final exhortation in the closing thoughts, Paul is sort of coming back and hitting on all those issues once again for the leaders to keep things in order. We saw last week in verse 8, this is a faithful saying, these things I want to affirm constantly that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So the outflow of the Christian life is bearing good fruit, maintaining good works. That's the believer side. Now for the elders, they need to be able to again weed out and root up and and if you would protect the sheep. And so once again, he comes back to the same topic that he's talked on several times here in Titus already. But avoid, verse 9, foolish disputes. Secondly, genealogies. Thirdly, contentions. Fourthly, strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. The word here to avoid in the Greek is the word peristemi. It literally means to turn oneself to face the other direction away from that person. And he is saying when you see them, just turn your back on it. You know, it reminds me of Joseph when Potiphar's wife was trying to get him in bed and he just left his jacket and fled. Here he's saying when they begin these foolish disputes, these discussions on genealogies, just Walk away. Turn your back and walk away from these guys. And um, again, the the foolish disputes. The word foolish here is the word moros. We know our word by what? Moron. (laughs) Avoid these moronic disputes. So he's saying that that, that they're, they're stupid, that there's not intellectualism to them, there's not insight to them. Often, if you've heard these kind of discussions, there's really no conclusion to them. You know, how many angels can stand on the, a pin's head, you know? Uh, there's, there's just no way to really come up with an answer. It's just stupidity leading to, to further stupidity. And the whole premise is not gonna get anywhere. Remember back in Titus chapter one, verse 11, Paul said concerning these people, these mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which are not for the sake of dishonest gain. So he's saying here in Titus 1, verse 11, that again, these guys, they won't stop. And you just need to turn your back on them and walk away because they're doing damage. And When you're dealing with fools, and boy, the the Proverbs has a lot about dealing with fools. But in essence, the Proverbs says you you can't really help them. Matter of fact, let's look at a few of these Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and what? Instruction. They just, they can't metabolize it. Proverbs one twenty two. How long, you simple ones, that's a nice way of saying fools, will you love simplicity, foolishness, for scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Proverbs 15.2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. The mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Proverbs 15.14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of of fools feeds on foolishness. Isn't that interesting? They they, they feed on it. They want more of the same foolish stupidity. In Proverbs 16, 22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. Guys that are sort of set in their own ways, and I've seen this. I've seen this with people where they're doing good and, and, and they're, they're growing in the Lord and then something happens and they're sort of teeter-tottering and then they just go towards, and there's nothing you can do except watch them collapse. Sometimes it has to do with pride. You know, they've read the Bible or sometimes they, these days they get on the internet and they listen to some guy from wherever could be anywhere in the world, and he has some new teaching, and, and the, the pride of their heart wells up. And you know what? They've, they've, you can't do anything. It doesn't matter how many words you say or don't say. It doesn't matter how much proof you come up or don't come up with. They're, they're bent. They're bent to do their foolish thing. And there's absolutely nothing you can do. They've set themselves uh, above the word of God in some places, for sure above the the leaders of the church, and they are just bent on their foolishness, and all the wisdom of the world isn't going to help them. And in particular, they had an issue with genealogies. Of course, the Jews, you know, they have a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament, and of course, People took, in, in the Jewish community to this day, take great pride into who, what tribe they're from. And, of course, many of them want to claim they're from the tribe of Judah if they're Christians, you know, of the lineage of Jesus, as if it gets them some special ranking in the Christian church, which it doesn't. But either way, he's just saying, it's, that's the shadow of the things to come. The things that have come is Christ. And, and of course, it, it always seems to be some kind of genealogy with, with cults. I've noticed with cults, they, they, they have their, their history of genealogies or they actually want you literally to, to find your own genealogies. And Paul is just saying, look, genealogies, it's a foolishness to turn your back on it and walk away. And again, it's not just for information, but for spiritual growth. And then he says contentions. The word contentions here literally is talking about one who is so self-centered that they're angry. <laughs> in, in essence, the contentions is because they're self-centered and the world revolves around them. And in essence, the church needs to revolve around them and their needs. And you know, just let me tell you something, guys. God has not made any human being or any group of human, meet, human beings to meet your needs. 
Only God can. This sermon tonight is not gonna meet all your needs. Nor all the sermons I've ever preached going back to the beginning of the church is gonna meet all your needs. There's gonna be things that, that you get interested in that are good and healthy. Maybe you, you came out of the Mormon church and you wanna study on Mormonism. I'm probably not gonna do a series on Mormonism. I'm probably never gonna have a series on Mormonism here. We will have somebody speak on Mormonism maybe one night so you can learn how to evangelize. But if you really want that, there's ministries out there that that's all they do is focus on evangelizing Mormons and you're gonna have to go outside the church Define that ministry. And God bless you with it. I hope you go through that phase and you get done with that phase. Uh, or maybe God's called you to evangelize Mormons and that's where you need that ministry and it's, it's great. And so again, I, I just wanna make it clear that there is no ministry or a group of ministries to meet all of your needs. And the thing is, is with God, when he takes us through trials, he puts us in a place that no man can help us. We have to get our eyes on God completely or we'll never exit that trial. <laughs> and, and it's God's purposes. It doesn't mean there's people around you that don't love you and don't care about you. It's just simply God has stopped the ability of men to help you he wants you to get your eyes completely upon him and lean only and totally upon him. And basically, if you've ever been through a hard trial, that's the end result. If you've come out of that, I trust in God more than I've ever trusted in him. I've learned more of the word than I've ever learned in the word. I, I uh, have come to the place to, to just get my eyes on him and not on anybody or anything, just in God alone. But yet these people that are causing contentions, they're, the root of it, they're, they're hurt, they're upset, they're bothered by people. And therefore they're being contrary on whatever the issue might be. Maybe it's how we have worship or how the Sunday schools run or, you know, anything. The color of the carpet. I mean, it could be anything. But it, it really comes back to them wanting the world to revolve around them and meet their needs, and it's not. The next thing we see is strivings about the law. Uh, again, this could take various forms. We saw in Acts 15 where people were wanting the Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it talks about how these people were teaching the law, but they had no idea what they were teaching, Paul says. They, they're just, it's nonsense. Um, whether it's how to interpret the law or keep the law or be Jewish in some way, I, I don't know um, which aspect this was, but he's saying that they're striving. They're striving about the law, and no, the law, again, was given to us to point to Jesus. And then he says, all of these things, they're unprofitable and they're useless, the word unprofitable is exactly what you think. There is no profit in it. So if you try to challenge this person on the genealogy or his teaching on the law, you're not gonna get anywhere. You're not gonna put wisdom into the mouth of a fool. You're just, you're just gonna get wrapped up in their foolishness. I, a proverb that says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, but answer, a cool in his, answer the fool in his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, there, there's, it's a fine line, but again, turn your back is what he says. Just get away from these guys. 
their, their, their conversations and what they're dabbling in eats up a lot of time and there's no profit in it. Secondly, he says it's useless. The old King James translates it vain, empty. It's emptiness. There, there's, it has an appearance of intellectualism, but it's not intellectual. It has an appearance that it would cause you to grow in the Lord, but there won't be any growth in the Lord. After you have all these genealogies down or all these teachings they think you need to have on the law, at the end of it, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna be worse, not better, uh, having delved into this. Then he has some really very striking words in verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The word reject here is peritimoi. It is stronger than the last word we looked at, peristimi, which means to turn your back on the person and to shun them, avoid them, walk away. This is even stronger than that. It literally means to, to turn away from them and have nothing to do with them. That's it. You completely ignore them. It's, it's a heavy word here. He's saying reject this divisive man. Now, how does he qualify him? He's been warned not once, but twice, and you don't give him a third time. This isn't American League. This is, uh, <laughs> you know, in the early church. They didn't have three strikes. They had two strikes. You were out. In essence, he's saying, you know what? We've asked you not to talk about the genealogies or the contentions or the law or whatever they were dabbling into. And we're gonna tell you one more time. The next time, you're out of here. And I'll tell you what, I've just seen this in so many ways through the years. And many times I haven't seen it, but the leaders in the church have seen it and dealt with it. You know, there, there are people that have come in the church that they don't even know it, but they're just womanizers. They're, they're here because they found a new pool of women to check out. And here's this guy after church, he's talking to women, he comes in with women, he leaves with women, he talks, and it's just like, one of the leaders will get discernment going, this just isn't right. And we talk to him about it. This, you know what? It doesn't seem that you're really here to grow in the Lord. It seems like you're here to, to pick up chicks. <laughs> and we'll just simply say, look, you need to find a leader. We'll tell him one or two, three, four leaders that you need to find one of these guys. When you come on the property, you find him, you stay with him, and you don't leave them. They'll walk you to your car at the end of it. And we're gonna do that for a time. If you're here really to grow in the Lord, then you'll grow in the Lord and you'll have good fellowship. And, you know, sometimes the guy's like, man, I didn't realize I was doing that. I, yeah, I'll do it. I'm submitted, no problem. And after two or three weeks of doing that, we're like, yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> you know, it, there, was no, there was no ill will there. But yet somebody discerned that maybe it was. And so we, we tested that. But sometimes, you know, the guy's like, what do you mean? I can talk to all the women I want. It's a free country. You're right. It's a free country. This is our property, and we're going to kick you off it right now. This isn't your property. This is private property. We can let here who we want here, and we can keep from being here who we don't want to be here. And we're telling you that you're no longer welcome. 
And so sometimes you have to do that. We had one guy years ago who had this teaching. He believed that polygamy was for the church today. And when he first came, you know, he brought a couple of women with him. We weren't sure, you know, if they were both his wives or what, you know, or either one of them. He was sort of a strange guy, but he really knew the Bible well. But he talked to a few leaders and eventually talked to myself and tried to explain to me why polygamy is for today. And to be honest with you, I, 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 you know, in the scriptures, you really can't fight that polygamy isn't for today. You can't be a pastor or a leader uh, if you have more than one wife. But, and so I'm like, you know what? We're not here to debate that. It's against the laws of the land. And don't ever bring it up again. You have this harebrained little teaching. It, again, what is it? It's a, it's a teaching that will lead to nothing but profitlessness, uselessness. It's, you, this, this little bug in your head, it, it's not going to bug anybody else here. <laughs> Don't bring it up again. You're welcome to come here and learn and grow. But we're warning you now, don't ever bring it up again. And, you know, within the next week, there's some lady coming up. Basically, this guy was trying to add to his harem in an indirect way asking this woman what he thought about uh, polygamy, and that was it. He was gone. And um, so again, there's weird things, and and it's the pastor's job, the leader's, the elder's job, not just to feed the sheep, but protect them from the wolves or people who are going to not give them a a profitable time of fellowship uh, afterwards as well. And so again, after the first or second admonition. Now, in Matthew 18, he actually explains this in detail where he says, if your brother sins against you or literally offends you, comes against you in offense, uh, and it could not just be you as an individual, but you as the whole church, go and tell him his fall between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And so again, we, we want love believes all things. We want to just believe that, you know, and I, I've seen it. You know, people come to Christ and some weirdo will put some little weird idea in their head and they just can't shake it. You know, there's this new little Christian and they got this bizarre teaching. You know, there's certain groups that, that just prey on new Christians. And, and I've seen them and they get these ideas, whether it's baptism or Calvinism or some other kind of ism, um, and they've got this little pet doctrine. I mean, remember uh, a sweet girl that got saved, and at the time, the Boston Church of Christ uh, was big in the town. It's dwindled, I don't know where it is now. But anyway, they were really infiltrating the colleges, and this girl had just gotten saved, and we were having a baptism just a few weeks after she got saved, and, and then another guy grabbed her and, and said, you're gonna get ba- you gotta get baptized in the name of Jesus only. And so she, you know, she was there in the waters of baptism. She was so confused. She's like, you know, I got to get baptized in this way and I got to make sure you say the name of Jesus. And, you know, it, it was like this thing. And she's only a couple weeks in the Lord. But she had so many ticks and fleas and, and things in her head. It was just, it was, she had no joy in that experience. And, and so again, we, we need to confront people that are, are bringing useless, helpless, empty teachings that are not going to bring profit. They may be interesting to them, but they really can mess other people up. But if he hears you, and honestly, most of the time people do hear you. Most of the time people listen and go, hey, oh, I, I just think differently on you than you and the leaders or whatever. It's like, fine, 
you know, think differently. I, I have no problem with that. Um, I, I, I'm not stupid enough to think that everybody here agrees with everything I say. I listen to my own tapes and I don't agree with everything I say. So I'm like going, man, that's, uh, that's me. That's really off. Gee, okay. But, you know, it's, uh, so I'm, I'm not saying that's going to ever happen and I don't think it's even happened uh, with the leadership. I know it's not happened with me and my wife and uh, like I said, it's not even happening to me with myself. So uh, I, I don't think that's a necessity. We all have to agree 100% on everything all the time. I just think that's ridiculous. I think the important thing is is that we are in agreement. And uh, the agreement is is that we're a Calvary Chapel, and with that comes a teaching that comes from Pastor Chuck and certain Calvary distinctives that we're going to follow them and uh, enjoy the fellowship of the Calvary Chapels. And um, I happen to believe in them as well, and I think most of the leaders do as well. But again, if there's some aspect that you're not in agreement with, we're not going to start World War III over some pet peeve doctrine. But if he hears you, you're offending people, stop this, then you've won your brother. It doesn't need to go any farther. But if he will not hear you, but then you take one or two more at the most. Uh, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. So then he's comes to the point where he's a divisive person who is rejected by the body. In 2 Timothy 2, he gives, gives us another step on how this is done. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. So the same topic in 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Knowing that they generate strife, quarrels, unrest. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we want to come with the word. We want to come humbly. We want to be patient. We want to teach them. You know, we're, we're, we're not some... Pharisees saying it's our way or the highway. You know, it's not that spirit whatsoever. It's coming and saying, hey, what are we doing uh, with this issue? Or how do you view this? Or, and again, to, to take them and but yet again, like I'm saying here it says, if perhaps God will grant them repentance and they escape the snare of the devil. As soon as you see that person, I've seen it several times, they just have that bent with them. And at that point, it's, Pride takes over. They know better. Doesn't matter if they're a Christian for a week. They know better. <clears throat> Maybe a Christian 10 years. And, and they just have this bent about them where they just can't sit and be fed anymore, be quiet. You know, to be teachable is such an important characteristic. And if you ever find yourself not being teachable, not being moldable, you need to be scared. Because it's simply a manifestation of pride and arrogance. If there's not a teachability about you, you need to really, really stop. And, and if you can't figure it out, get some counsel. Talk to one of the pastors or elders. Get some prayer. It's a very, very, very scary place to be where you cannot be taught. 
And uh, I'm, I'm including myself in that. I'm including everybody in that. There's no, there's no end to where we always need to be teachable, whether we're 20 years old or 80 years old. We need to be, have a humble and teachable spirit. And uh, if we're not, you really got to be concerned and be scared. And uh, so here again, these people get to that place that whether they'll listen or not, it, it's 50-50. And, you know, I've had people ask me many times, it's like, well, what do you think? Do you think they'll take to heart what you said? And it's like, man, it's just 50-50. You know, we told, we told them, we warned them, we showed them in the scripture, we loved them, we prayed for them. They seemed to have a good countenance when they left us. But we'll talk to them in a couple days and we'll see. And it's 50-50 at best. I mean, it's just, they leave and they seem to be calmed and everything seems to be fine. It seems like either their mind or the devil or whatever just bends them. The next time you see them, they're more tweaked. And uh, sometimes they are coming back. They're just humble and broken and it's a beautiful thing. But uh, we have to be in that humble and broken spirit of, of fellowship. And there's a great book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And in this book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, he talks about how he was a shepherd and then he also became a pastor. But he talks about when the sheep come into the fold, how he, you can't put the sheep directly in with all the other sheep because they have ticks and they have fleas. You have to put them for a time by themselves or with a group of sheep that you just got and you daily got to look at them and anoint them with oil and take care of their salves and kill all the bugs in their ears and their nose on their skin and their toes and everything. And, and then once they've been with you and they recognize your voice and they'll follow you because if you get them out there, you get one sheep not listening to your voice and taking off. All the sheep follow the aggressive, uh, you know, anxious sheep. They all follow them. But also once you get the sheep out there, if the sheep is restless, all the sheep become restless, and once they're restless, nobody eats. Nobody will drink. So if he takes a sheep and puts him right in, and they're anxious, they're not listening, all the sheep won't eat. And it's, it's an interesting thing that just one disgruntled person, one divisive person, and the Proverbs says six things God hates, yea, the seventh is an abomination to bring division amongst the people. And, and here we see again that if they have that unteachable, prideful spirit. It's a scary thing. So there's one of three things. Either one, they're an erring brother that needs to be reached out to. You know, he just really might be hurting and maybe some weirdo really did get in his ear and and he needs to be reached out to. So when we look at a person who's being belligerent or divisive or... um, again, trying to come up with some fruitless discussion. Are they a brother in the Lord, but they're just in error? That may be the case. And what we need to do is reach out to them and teach them and work with them and love them. Secondly, are they just a stubborn, self-willed sheep that needs to be broken? And by us going through the Matthew 18, we rebuke them we get two more we rebuke them we got to take them now before the church in this case we would take them before this fear of group of people they're with if they're in a home fellowship we would do it at the home fellowship and at that point we kick them out and the bible says that when you kick them out god kicks them out (laughs) it's not just the church turning their back god's turning his back it's not just the church door that shut it's heaven doors that shut 
In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul kicks that brother out, he, he says that his flesh would be destroyed, that his soul might be saved. And we come to 2 Corinthians, he did repent. And so again, he was a sheep, but he had just become self-willed and stubborn and, and he wasn't broken by the family of God. God's gonna break him. And when he does get broken, we need to, he's a sheep, but we need to bring him back now that he's not a self-willed, stubborn person anymore. Thirdly, is he's a wolf. And he may be in sheep clothing, and sometimes uh, those sheep clothing are so good, you, you can only tell they're a wolf because they're eating people. <laughs> you know, sheep don't eat sheep. But you can tell them there, as Paul says in Galatians 6, they're proselyting people to bring them after themselves. They're trying to gather people unto themselves. You know, that, that's a scary thing. You know, when I'm done with this message tonight, I hope I've directed your eyes to Jesus. I hope your eyes are on the Lord. I hope you have a deeper commitment to him. I hope it's not the fan club has grown or people are saying, boy, I would never make it without Brian's teachings. Then something's wrong. I I preach in such a way to get your eyes on me or your eyes on our organization or eyes on, no. The eyes need to be put on Jesus. But wolves, again, they want your eyes to be directed to them and their organization and their pet peeve teachings. In Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple, the naive. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. So walking disorderly, just not in unison. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14 and 15, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So in this case, he's a brother. He's not a wolf. In Romans 16, he was a wolf. But here he's a brother, but he severely needs to be humbled and broken. And by that, he's going to not have the fellowship of the saints until he repents of of that that heart's attitude that's wrong. In 2 John 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So here it's a person clearly seen as a wolf. It's hard to know. Sometimes it takes time. And you know, you always want to err on the side of mercy. But once it's clearly identified that people are being stumbled away from the Lord or people are being drawn into them in their secret Bible study or whatever it might be, at that point, you need to act decisively and immediately and, and mark them as Paul does in, second, in, first Timothy, in second Timothy. He names the guys and says, these guys are heretics and their doctrine is like cancer. He names them. And then he says here, knowing that such a person is warped, sinning, being self-condemned. This word, this word warped, also translated perverted, 
It's the Greek word extrafo. And extrafo means turning inside out or twisting completely around. So knowing that this person is turned inside out, this person is completely twisted, and by his own words, by his own actions, he's going to condemn himself. It's going to become evident what his true heart's motive is just in a matter of time, that his doctrine was to draw people after himself. His doctrine was for gain. His doctrine was for uh, trying to get a fan club so he could you know, pick off the cutest girls or whatever it is. Uh, it's only a matter of time until you, you see the real motive of what's going on. But again, you know, the, I, I just think there needs to be a healthy respect for the church. Christ loves the church. He died for the church. And there needs to be a healthy respect for the leadership of the church that they're there to protect you. And, uh, and again, if... You know, we have 50 plus leaders in the church here and if all of us are saying the guy is a heretic and you're going, well, all of you guys are wrong, but him, I mean, just do the math. <laughs> I mean, what are the odds that 50 leaders, many of them have been here 25 years as long as I have, were all wrong, but this guy's right. And that typically is what it comes down to. It's just simple Simple math going, how could all of these guys be wrong? And this is the only guy that's right. Well, then we come to verse 12 and there's personal note. He says in Titus 3.12, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, Paul, when he gives these personal notes, they're neat because we see that Paul is a real person. You know, Paul's not a euphemism for apostle or something. He's a real person and he needs parchments and, and, and clothes. And, and in this case, he needs companionship. And he, he mentions a guy by the name of Artemis, which this is the only mention we have. We don't know anything more about him than that. Tychicus is mentioned five times, four other times, and, and then here in Titus. And uh, we, we know that... Uh, he was with Paul on his missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor, it says in Acts 20, verse 4. He was the one who brought the letter to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. And uh, he's also mentioned in Ephesus or in Ephesians 6, 21. And he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 12. Um, as again, uh, a remarkable man of God who has definitely won Paul's trust. And, and Paul here wants his fellowship and encouragement. Nicopolis, there's actually nine of them in the ancient uh, Roman culture and, and even before that. And so they don't know which Nicopolis exactly they're talking about. Most speculate it's the one off the coast of uh, Acacia, the southern province of Greece, it was founded by Octavian, the first Roman emperor, named later Augustus, after uh, his victory from Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Atrium in 31 BC is when that one was founded. So again, it's a speculation, but it is a nice warm climate during the winter. And then Paul says, I've decided to spend the winter there. And of course, it would be a nice area uh, 
down near Dalmatia, which is the city of Split today in Croatia. And then in Titus 3.13, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. So whether they're there or they're getting there, he's saying, make sure you take care of the needs of these missionaries, if you would. Zenos, again, we know nothing about him. He's a lawyer. Was he a Roman litigator or was he a Jewish expert of the law? He does clearly have a Roman name here, but most Jews um, would have a Roman name as well as a Jewish name, especially if they had Roman citizenship. Apollos, he's mentioned 10 times in the New Testament. He's described as a man who was mighty in the scripture in Acts 18. He had only heard up to that point the teachings of John the Baptist, and he was teaching them with eloquence and power, but he wasn't exactly correct on Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila pulls him aside and said, um, are you familiar that you know, John the Baptist was preaching about the Messiah? He goes, yeah, but I didn't know who the Messiah is. And they said, well, let us introduce you to Jesus. And, uh, and then they continued a, a ministry with him. And uh, we, we see that he had great power and authority in teaching. And in 1 Corinthians, the church there had divided into, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. And others, I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. But Apollos was one of the big four next to Paul and Jesus. Um, and uh, he was a man mighty in, in speech. And he said, make sure they're lacking nothing. So take them in, encourage them, let them minister to you. And then whatever they need, whether it's food or whether it's finances or whether it's a coat, send them on their way so they can continue their ministry. And in verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. So notice here, go with me back to chapter one of Titus, verse 16. I want you to notice six times in these three chapters, he mentions the importance of good works. In Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. So on the one hand, you have people, the, the final manifestation is they, you're not gonna see good works. In Titus chapter two, verse six and seven, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things showing yourselves to be a pattern of good works and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. But again, the young men were to be a pattern of good works. In verse 14 of chapter two there, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. When God's people are living as God's people, there'll be a zealousness, a passion for good works. In Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. In Titus 3.8, we finished last week on this verse. This is a faithful saying that these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. They're good for the men doing the good works, and they're good for the men seeing them do good works, and they're good for the men receiving the good works. But again, to have a church that, that it's not being profitable in good works. He's saying, this is not a good place to be. And then we see here again in verse 14 tonight, 
Let our people learn to maintain. Be careful to maintain. Be zealous for. Let all the young men be ready for good works. And then like we just read about these two guys that have urgent needs, um, he says now, uh, Zenos and Apollos, I want you to be ready to meet these urgent needs. So in essence, to have some money put aside or to have a place for people to stay, to have a, that gift of hospitality, be ready to meet the needs. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, he says, let him who stole still no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. So again, it's a, a lifestyle of being a good steward, of being a hard worker, uh, of yourself not being in need, but beyond that, have something to give to those that, who are in need. In Hebrews thirteen sixteen, but do not forget to, be, to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so again here, we, we, we see the encouragement. And then the final verse here tonight, Titus three fifteen. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Not all, all everybody did. Grace be with you all. Amen. So give a greeting, give a hug and a kiss to all of those who know us and love us and uh, who are, if you would, submitted to the teachings that we've given, who are interested in the ministry we're doing. Let them know what's going on. And then grace from our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ to all of you, whether you love me or not, I just desire for grace to be upon you. And of course, in number six, remember he said as priests, we all have the power to put that blessing upon people. Man, I really hope that you, you sense that power that God's given all of us as believers to put that blessing upon your kids as they go to school, to put that blessing upon your friends and just ask God to, Whatever, you know, Jesus says, you know how to love people because you know how to love yourself. Love people as you would want to be loved. And I would just say, pray a blessing on people. Speak a blessing on people that you would want to be spoken upon your, yourself. Amen? Well, Lord, we thank you again as we finish the book of Titus here tonight. We are constantly reminded through this book to avoid those who are wanting to have stupid conversations that lead to nothing and also divisive people who won't submit when we're told not to have those kind of conversations here. And um, we're also reminded to continue good works. And we're touched, Lord, as we see Paul's desire to fellowship with a couple of the brothers and to see that his other brethren, are, their needs are met as they continue on at their ministry and And that the whole church, Lord, has a good reputation in the city as hard workers, honest workers. And and we're always maintaining good works in our fellowship amongst one another. And we do ask in Jesus' name that you would bless us and make us a blessing. And I just ask tonight, Lord, that you would put your blessing upon all that are here. And even those who aren't here, Lord, please, just give them a rich, hungry heart for you, for the word. 
Give them a thirst for fellowship and prayer. Lord, we ask tonight, Lord, as we're in this recession, that you would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon every person and family represented here more than they can contain, that they would be a witness to those who don't know you to see us, even in the time of recession, to be a people blessed by you. And we know, Lord, that you will turn around all things for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Paul said, I've been rich, I've been poor, and all things I've learned to be content. Lord, let us learn by your grace to be content in whatever state we find ourselves in. We just lay our lives at your feet now and have your way in us, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Before you head out, talk to some people around you and share with uh, what God shared with you tonight or this week or last month or... Um, you know, don't talk about Lost or, you know, the latest episode or any of that. I'm just saying, encourage one another in the Lord and, uh, and build one another up in the Lord. Amen? God bless you.